Okay, let me take you back to remind you of where we're up to. Remember back point, before point two, I asked something to the effect, so how do we live as lords over sin through the resurrection? Why are we so different? Why aren't we more different? What is the connection between this age and the resurrection age? Now the answer to these questions I've gathered under the four headings. Two advocates, putting and hostility. Now we've looked at the two advocates. Jesus, who has risen to the heavenly places to advocate for us before God. And the Spirit, who has descended into the world to advocate for Christ to us. Now the additional putting and hostility. Firstly, in Romans it's about putting to death. Romans 8 we just read. So the word is simpler and cruder than putting to death. It's actually kill. Kill the misdeeds of the body. Christians should be killers. Killers not of others, nor of themselves, but killing of sinfulness in themselves. We have to be totally intolerant of our sinfulness. Notice that we do this by the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the risen Christ poured out upon us by his resurrection. We are led by the Spirit. We're not alone in this struggle with sin. The Spirit is fighting with us in this battle. You see it also in Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Secondly, and more commonly, we're not to put to death so much as to put off. To put off like you put off your coat. Put off the old earthly way of life and its sins and its entanglements. A series of verses, we're going to turn them over so fast now, I thought it was easier to put them up on the screen for you and you jot down the uh, verse numbers and look up later. But Romans 13, 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off, put off the works of the darkness and put on the armour of light. Ephesians 4, 22, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires. Ephesians 4.25, therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour, for we are members one of another. Colossians 3.8, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Hebrews 12.1, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. James chapter 1 verse 21 Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 1 So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. But the putting off, this, this negative, is also matched up in the positive by putting on the new. So, Romans 13, 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. 
Romans 13.1 But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Ephesians 4.24 And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 6.11 Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Chapter 6 verse 14 Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Colossians 3.10 And having put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Chapter 3 verse 12 Put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. 1 Peter 5.8 But since we belong to the day let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. There's this constant running theme, you see, that runs through the New Testament epistles, that now we are in Christ, we must put off the old self and put on the new self. That's what we must do, seeing we are dead to the old self and alive to the new. Notice in all this activity which is in view, The Lord Jesus is our advocate before God and it's because of his all-sufficient death that we can be righteous in our spiritual resurrection. And the Holy Spirit has come to us and been sent into us, bringing us new life to transform us as people. But part of that change is what the Spirit does through us, leading us to act leading us to put to death the old, to put off the old, leading us to put on the new. So we can represent the change we see in life in this manner. Between Jesus' coming and the end, between Jesus, the J and the E on our timeline, our advocate, the Holy Spirit, has come down from the risen Jesus and stimulates and enables and is at work within us to pee, to put to death and to put off, put on the new life. That is, that little climb up that we're doing, which will never get to heaven that way, but that little climb up which changes our life is a climb up inspired and enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is the noticeable measurable change that we see in the behaviour of those who have been born again. More noticeable in the behaviour, the shifts of those who are caught up in substance abuse or gambling or swearing or sexual ethics. Or, But more important is the whole ethos of life's choices. It was lovely hearing Dave earlier this evening talking about becoming a Christian 12 months ago and asked, well, what's the difference now? And it's it's just all different. (laughs) Everything's different. There's the change, you see. There's the the P going up that has happened. Life cannot remain the same once you're born again by the Spirit of God. If you're born again by the Spirit of God and exactly the same as you always have been, then you haven't been born again by the Spirit of God because He changes us. He alters us. Now, it's obvious when you know you see the 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 the, the sexually addicted uh, prostitute come drunkard gambler who gets converted out of the gutter and immediately that's that change everybody sees, but the real change happens with everybody. 
as we just no longer live for ourselves but for him who died for us and was raised again, as we modify our language, as we change the way in which we serve people, as we start serving people, as we take new interests, as we come to understand God and his way, the change happens because of the Spirit. Here is the kind of basic change that I see coming out of university uh, graduates as they leave university. For if you leave as a Christian person, what you leave university to do is to find where you can minister the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of where you can minister the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you go and try and find some housing that you can live in and can afford. And in order to live in that housing and can afford to live there, you go and get a job. That's how Christians leave university. Because serving other people in the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ is the top priority in their life, not their job. The top priority is, where am I going to serve Christ? And therefore, where am I going to live? And therefore, what kind of job do I need to be able to enable me to live and do this ministry? Whereas those who live not under the power of the Holy Spirit, their first question is, where is my career? They're not interested in jobs, they're interested in careers. How am I going to climb the ladder? How am I going to be a success? How am I going to make my way in the Lord? Where's my career? And one of the keys in the Australian economy is to get the biggest mortgage you can, as early as you can. And when the end goal that you have is to please yourself and to find pleasures. It's just a different lifestyle. It's not a question of this person sins and that person doesn't sin. It's a question of this person's whole reason for life, raison d'etre, a whole manner of existence is completely different to this other person's. It's not even understandable by the other person. It comes in lots of ways. There's a, a, a website that you can chase up called the, web, the, the Child Free Zone, uh, whose uh, logo is a, a baby with a circle and a big line through it. And as you look through the Child Free Zone and all these adults who want to live their lives without children, free of children under all circumstances, whatever else they do, no children near them, when you look through them and see the testimonies, time after time after time, you'll notice that they're atheists. Atheists don't want children. Atheists aren't interested in other people. They don't value the lives of other people. If there is no God, they're God. If they're God, they don't want something to intrude on them. And so it's not surprising that the Australian Census Bureau shows that the, the atheists... Um, the university graduate atheists of Melbourne have the lowest birth rate of any group in Australia, any group of women in Australia. Why Melbourne, I don't know, but I just thought I'd bring this out. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a drizzly kind of place, I guess, or something. I didn't make up the Melbourne bit. That's what the actual Australian Bureau of Statistics found, that... <laughs> Melbourne University graduates who are atheists have the lowest birth rate in Australia. But they are atheists that have the low birth rate. See, Christians have a high birth rate because we value life, we value babies, we value relationships, we value people, we value God. Our value system is just completely different. It takes a while to see that working out 
But as we see it working out, making one decision after another decision after another decision, as you see it working out, you will see your life is more and more different from your contemporaries who were not born again by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the changes, they start small, but by the time you reach the moon, they are miles apart. We're never getting near to being transformed like Jesus. We never kind of leap up to the top range. That doesn't happen until we die or the Lord Jesus returns. But we are heading in that direction. And that raises the other impact of the resurrection age on sin and this age, namely hostility. Because as we put off the old way of life, we reject the old way of life and effectively we're rejecting our culture. We may be rejecting our family and its culture. We may be rejecting our friends and their culture because we no longer will do the things that they did. And we used to do with them but we won't do those things anymore. And they cease to invite us and then they get angry with us. For while wherever we're in this age we're accepted. We will not suffer hostility because we're part of this age. But when we leave this age, we will suffer hostility because we're no longer part of this age. I, I represented in our diagram, I represent this hostility like this. For the further you go along, away from the beginning point, the greater the hostility will become. The more you are like the world, the world will like you. The more you are different to the world, the world will hate you. And as we try to change the world and change our own lives, to lift the timeline of life towards the resurrection age, we'll meet resistance at every point, the kind of resistance that I'm calling H for hostility. And the hostility is going to come from two sources, external, internal. Firstly, the external source. Jesus warns it of us in John chapter 15. Come there, John 15. It's the context of one of these promises of the coming of the Holy Spirit. John 15, and I'm picking up verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it had hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. Of course we're going to be hated if we reject the world. The world will reject us. It rejected our Lord. Why wouldn't it reject us, his servants? 
The world loves darkness. It doesn't love those who expose its wickedness. We all know the political correct pressure to say nothing about alcoholic abuse, about homosexual behaviour, about gambling, about sexual immorality, because you'll be accused of narrow-minded bigotry, intolerant wowserism. We can prove that all these things have devastating consequences on the health and life of people, corrupting our societies and destroying lives, but we're not allowed to say it in our community of free speech. And try to introduce God and prayer into a university conversation. I hope you do. But you'll notice it's not warmly received in tutorial classes. And yet, why not? It's a free country. You're allowed to say whatever you are. You can express your ideas. Doesn't the university tutor always start every class with, we welcome everybody's ideas, we're going to think together? Except Christians, they mustn't mention anything Christian. You mustn't use a word like sin. That is an unacceptable word. It's the forbidden word. You can swear as much as you like, but don't mention sin. Or the wrath of God, or judgment, or hell. They're not acceptable words. They're not part of the conversation. You must leave your Christian brain outside the room because in here we don't allow Christian brains. We'll allow Christians provided they're brainless. The censorship of the university community almost knows no end. Just drop in Christian conversation and see what the world is like. Next time you go to a dinner party, turn to the hostess at some time during the evening and just say to her when there's a quiet moment, have you been considering your death recently? <laughs> it changes the nature of the evening's conversation, no end, and assures you that you will not be invited again to a boring dinner party in that house. Try to introduce God and you will find persecution, rejection and ostracism. You will find people laughing and scorning at you. The Apostle Paul wrote... All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2,000 years ago, that was written about the city of Sydney. Say nothing of Wollongong. <laughs> There's nothing new or unexpected in this. Peter wrote, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased to sin so as to live the rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time is past, suffices, for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. I remember one of our students at uh, New South Wales University going to one of the uh, secular university campus uh, colleges, uh, a Christian girl from the country. And uh, uh, one would uh, generally describe her as a very attractive uh, uh, woman who found her way in the university college totally 
isolating and alienating. They would have nothing to do with her because she wouldn't enter into the debauchery of the drinking of the kind of processes of introducing students into that life. She refused to have anything to do with it and so she was actually kind of sent to Coventry. No one would talk to her at all. She broke down at about Easter time of that year and so actually went to one of their drinking parties and suddenly she became popular with everybody. If you live as the world, the world loves you. If you choose to live differently to the world, you must expect the world to hate you. And what the Holy Spirit comes to do is to tell you to put off the world. Put it away. Kill it off. Have nothing to do with it. Put on a new way of life. A new way of living. As long as we are not in the resurrection world, we will be in the world of... Sorry, as long as we are not in the world to come, we will be in the world of hostility. It's part of the sufferings of the present age. There's no point being Christian and thinking you're going to be able to avoid it. Grasp the reality and you'll face it. Fear the reality and you'll never cope with it. If you're ashamed of me and my word, says Jesus, in this evil generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes with his holy angels in glory. If anyone wants to be my disciple, he's got to deny himself. That's say no to self. Take up the cross. That's being willing to suffer and follow me. For unless you hate your mother, father, brother, sister, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus constantly was preparing his disciples for the opposition and the hostility that will inevitably flow from being born again by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. It must happen. All who desire to live a, Christ, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't say will be every minute of every day persecuted, but it also doesn't say has a slight chance of being persecuted. It says you will be persecuted. And it's important just psychologically to grasp it. I can only illustrate this from rugby, so I know a whole bunch of you are going to fall asleep. That's all right. But for those of you who know anything about rugby, you know that if you enter into a ruck, if you enter into a tackle in fearfulness and hesitancy, you will get injured. But if you enter in with vigour, you will not get injured and there is a chance that the other bloke will. <laughs> But the best protection in playing rugby is to play hard. Though the great temptation is always to pull back. But it's the person who pulls back who gets injured. Christianity is the same. You pull back, you will not cope with the suffering that's coming. Stick your chin out, get ready for it, go forward. Don't be surprised when it happens. Which brings me to the second source of hostility, that is internal. For the ongoing conflict is between the flesh, my old self, and the spirit, my new self. You see it in Galatians chapter 5 where it says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, keeping you from doing the things that you want to do. Here's the battle that we continue in this world still in the flesh of Adam, 
still double-minded, still wanting this world and wanting the next world at the same time. And so we have one foot in the boat and one foot on the wharf. That's the worst possible position to be in. Have both feet on the wharf or both feet in the boat. But the person who has one foot on a boat and one foot on a wharf, slowly as the tide ebbs out, has got a terrible difficulty. You can do the splits, but there comes a limit. (laughs) You will, in the end, wind up in the drink. Get your foot off the wharf and get in the boat, or get off the boat and get on the wharf. But don't try and straddle boat and wharf. You can't love the world and love God. That's not the option. The good we want to do, we fail to do. The evil we don't want to do, we continue to do. Here's the struggle that lies before us daily and hourly. And it's why, by the Spirit, we must put to death the old and put on the new. So here is living as lords over sin. Two big mistakes, two common errors. Big mistake number one is to believe there's no change. To think that nothing is happening. Big mistake number two is to think there's a complete change, to think that we will reach perfection and sinlessness this side of heaven. Both of those are big mistakes. There will be change. You can't be a Christian and go on living the way that you have been. If you are to be born again, it is to live differently. There will be change. But the complete change doesn't come until the Lord Jesus returns. Two common errors. Error number one, I have no power to change. That is, I have to do everything by myself and I'm not able to do it. That's not right because you have the Spirit of God at work in you leading you to put to death, empowering you, giving you the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You don't develop the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience. God the Spirit gives to you these gifts of love, joy, peace, these fruit, this fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. The Spirit is at work in us, changing us. Common error two. Well, the Spirit will change me so I don't have to do anything about it. I'll just lie back and let go and let God. No, no. The Spirit leads you to put to death the misdeeds of the body. The Spirit leads you to put off the old nature. The Spirit leads you to put on the new nature. It is a cooperative activity. The Spirit comes to enable, to lead, to guide, to teach that you will live righteously. But there's a bigger mistake than any of these ones that have just listed. There's a bigger error. And that is not to have the Lord Jesus Christ as your advocate in heaven. To seek to stand before God and all the world on the basis of your record, on the basis of your morality, on the basis of of your sinfulness, on the basis that God won't be angry with me, on the basis that, well, you didn't have time to ever get around to repent, on the basis that you just didn't think it mattered, on the basis that you didn't think Jesus was all that important, on the basis that you thought all religions were the same, that you'll turn up on the last day before God and say, well, I'm really okay, aren't I? No, you're not. And you can't be. Not without the Lord Jesus Christ arguing for you. 
For the devil will have a field day as the books are opened and the real things that you have done, the thoughts that you've had, the dreams that you've pushed forward in your mind, the actions that you've taken, the way you've treated other people, your carelessness with words about the truth, the bearing of false witness, the covetousness within you, the cheating that you've done and the lying that you've done, the lust, it will all be there in the book and it won't be washed clean, it'll all be there in the book and you will have to give answer for every idle word that you have uttered. Do not fear him who can kill the body, but fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. No, no, the bigger mistake is not to have Jesus as your advocate in heaven. That is the big, big mistake. For Jesus is the Lord over sin. So first, deal with your sin in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take it to him and ask for forgiveness and ask him to represent you in the court of heaven and then secondly deal with your sin in this age while you wait for the resurrection let me finish with that passage that i said was so good that you need to mark it titus chapter 2 titus chapter 2 It's just a lovely passage in summing up so much of this stuff. Titus 2, it starts at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his death on our behalf, rescuing us, ransoming us, redeeming us out of our sinfulness and out of your wrath. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that he not only died for us, but that he rose for us and that he ascended into the right hand of your right hand to plead our cause for us, to advocate for us, to represent us and to hold his own death and the blood that he shed as the means by which he can argue the case that we be forgiven, that we be justified, that we be pardoned. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we who are so sinful can know the full free forgiveness that he has won for us and that he continues to intercede and advocate on our behalf. And we also praise you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of your Holy Spirit that your risen Son sent to us to persuade us of the truth of the gospel, to convict us of our sinfulness and to show us the way of salvation, transforming and changing our hearts that we no longer wish to stand on our own two feet, but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for your risen Son, 
sending his spirit, your spirit, into the lives of men and women. And we pray, Father, that by your spirit you would enable us to put to death the misdeeds of the body, to put off the old way of life, to put on the new way of life as we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus, as we wait for that time when we will be fully transformed into your likeness, when we will stand with him in glory. Give us victory this day, Father, over the sins of our lives, that we may grow ever more like the Lord Jesus Christ as we await for that final transformation when we will be gloriously like him. And we pray, Father, for those amongst us who do not yet know of this rebirth, this restart, who do not yet have Jesus advocating for them before you and do not yet know the advocacy of Jesus' spirit in their lives. We pray for those amongst us like this, Father. We thank you for David coming to know you this time last year and pray that others this night might come to know Jesus as their advocate. Put their trust firmly in him and his death for them and be transformed by your spirit. Not only in this world, but more importantly, fully, completely, in the age to come. And we pray for them as we pray for ourselves. In Jesus' name. Amen.